Hello and welcome to the Coaching Podcast, coaching for success in sport and business. Your host is Emma Doyle, the energy and high performance under pressure coach who is a world leader in unleashing human potential. Buckle up for this high octane session. Let them have it, coach. G'day, everybody, and welcome to the Coaching Podcast. I have the pleasure today of interviewing a fellow cricket lover. I certainly got my jaw smacked out once in an indoor cricket match. That was super fun. But uh, back to Harry, as we 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 love to call him, recently retired from the Australian Defence Force after almost 30 years. He's a psychologist, runs a human performance consultancy, helping create high-performance people, cultures, and teams focusing on enhancing leadership, organization capabilities to ensure high performance and effectiveness. Not only that, a lead singer, songwriter, this is going to be a crazy interview. <laughs> I'm so excited. Welcome to the show, Harry, and how are you? Good. Thanks, Emma. It's uh, it's good to be here. All right. Well, listen, we'll jump straight into it. It is our first question. I'm going to go anchovies on a pizza. You either love them or you strongly dislike them. What's your take, Harry? Uh, look, I, I, I ebb and flow. Sometimes I feel like uh, some anchovies and other times I don't. I like them, I suppose, is the, the main answer. All right. Because you answered that way, could you start with a moment in your career that went really, really well, either as a coach, as a leader? Yeah, I guess the, the, the highlight, and I use that cautiously because um, in warfare, uh, highlights come at a cost always. But you know, the, the the most satisfying mission that I completed was uh, a parachute operation insertion into the mountains of Afghanistan at night with a team of around 30 uh, operators and a dog and an interpreter. And that's pretty funny, strapping people to your, your, your front and jumping out at night. That's the first time they've ever jumped out of a plane. So it's not fu too funny for them. Um, but I think, you know, very high risk events, as you can imagine, and trying to bring everything together, convince not only the operators, but the command that um, we can do it to uh, to execute the mission, uh, which we did successfully without breaking in, without firing a shot, which is, you know, the, the, the SAS's uh, true remit. And I guess, you know, there's, there's obviously it's a large story and there's a lot more to it, but um, it really came uh, towards the back of my career and it really highlighted a few things for me in the lead up to that jump and that mission and, and executing that mission. Uh, we did a lot of night operations and rehearsals and it wasn't until I was standing on the ramp at 18,000 feet looking down into the mountains with, uh, you know, only a couple of minutes out before we dispatched the, uh, the sortie or the, the group, our group. Uh, into the night air uh, that I was overcome, overwhelmed with a sense of fatigue and and uh, right at the moment when I really needed to be the, the most switched on, I just had a moment to pause and, and realise how tired I was. And I, I kind of a fleeting moment in my mind as, as thoughts come and go. I'd been up for the five nights prior to that and it was probably the first time or now that I reflect back on how important self-care is and it's not so much about health and well-being and feeling good, I get all of that stuff. It's actually really important to the mission and to be able to be at your best. You know, I was going to bed at two in the morning, three in the morning and waking up at six to, to do other tasks. And you, in the throes of everything and the heightened arousal around, you know, focus and attention that that, that we bring to things, that's probably the, the, the biggest um, lesson that I learned out of that 
um, and I, you know, was amongst many, because I think after a long career, that was a culmination of a whole bunch of things. I think that really, uh, really went well. And those moments are fleeting as well. You know, normally you win ugly, you do your best on the day and get through it and, and win or or succeed. Uh, and then the occasionally it goes absolutely to plan, and that's that's rare. So that's why it sticks with me. Yeah, nice. Thank you for sharing that. And I love the message around the more we take care of ourselves as well obvious it's obvious but the more we can take care of others and uh and coach them through wherever they're at so thank you for sharing that harry what about on the flip side mate can you think of a moment that didn't go well and what might be a lesson or two yeah there's been a few and again uh i guess uh you know with through the military lens there's many moments of 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 uh you know trauma and and um adversity uh in the con- in the context of combat and war fighting the hardest moments are seeing your hurts, your mates getting hurt, uh, seeing civilians getting hurt, those types of things. Uh, I lost a friend in 2008. Uh, Sean McCarthy was killed in an IED ambush, uh, improvised explosive device. Uh, I was driving the car. We we hit the IED and, and were ambushed. I was returned home to Australia, um, wounded in action, and I spent a lot of time in, in bed on um, intravenous antibiotics and other drugs, and so I had a, uh, strangely had a, the longest break I've had uh, from during my career, uh, uh, which strangely, and just a lot of time to think. I was already kind of interested in psychology and studying um, philosophy when two things struck me during that time, laying in bed by myself and in, uh, in quite a depressed mode for for a long period. Um, you know, I, firstly, what was I going to do? Uh, at that stage, my leg was badly infected and um, the doctors were had already spoken that if it doesn't get better soon, we'll have to remove part or all of your leg. And so that posited the question, what was I going to be beyond a gunslinger? And uh, how was I going to provide for my family? You don't earn a lot of money uh, being a, a soldier, that's for sure. Even a, even you know, special ops soldiers are humbly paid, mo- modestly paid. And, uh, and the other part was how was I going to get my body back and how, if I wanted to get back if it, at the other end, if, if I didn't lose my leg and I was, how was I going to get back? And the first was just education. I, I decided then to really double down on, on my education that was going to be one of the main variables that would uh, contribute to success if the worst case happened. And that's when I really supercharged my study. But the study, it's often said, you know, soldiers don't have time to study. It's a, it's rubbish. Um, in fact, I think it brought more order, certainly um, curbed you know, a bit of partying on weekends and, and things like that. Um, the other part was how was I going to get back? And I, I realised that, you know, to get my body back to full strength, I'd lost maybe 15 kilos. I was down from 85 to to 70 or even less um i'd go to the gym go to the strength and conditioning guys and i'd and struck me that i'd need to do the same for my mind because i was pretty you know low and and uh i was uh full of self-doubt shame i'd been returned with an infection who gets (laughs) returned from the battlefield with a simple infection i felt guilt and shame for um having been driving the car and hitting the id so there was a lot of work to do i realized so i just engaged with sykes and you know, in a, in a fashion, uh, you know, analogous to to, to the gym, I, I set about using uh, discovered mental tools, and uh, they've become something I'm I'm infatuated with and learning more about. And again, it aligned with and helped drive my passion for psychology and, and more on the performance side rather than the than the um, the mental health side. But mm. I still do a lot mm-hmm. of both. Thank you for sharing that moment. Uh, yeah, can't have been easy. Uh, and the importance of 
self-reflection, isn't it? The mental gym. We all of us go, I, you know, go to the gym, no problem, pop it, pop it in the diary, but we don't often pop the uh the mindset stuff in the diary as well, which is which is equally as important. So thank you again just for yeah, sharing that uh that story, which really the next question you've already shared a huge sliding doors moment, but that is our our next sort of defining moment where your life really makes a dramatic turn in one direction or the other. Can you share another uh, sliding doors moment in your life? Yeah, I, I uh, kind of pulls all of those together. I think the most significant inflection point, certainly something that that I think changed how I think about the how I thought about the future up until that point, um, was at the end of my towards the end of my career, and I, I started a. I started a, a foundation for educating soldiers while they're still serving. So, you know, there's a lot of support for veterans out in the world. And, and sometimes I think too much, but uh, that's another issue. But I think uh, I started a foundation. I had a, a move to, I, ha- I had such a great experience with my own education and and soldiers, as I said, are humbly paid. And uh, uh, certainly education, if you've got a family, is a, is a big expense. So, I set this set the foundation up, and I'm glad to say it's it's um, going great guns. It's very very successful, and we've put a lot of um, soldiers through education during their career. So when they hit the end of their career, they're ready to go or more prepared, rather than hitting the end and then going, "What do I do now? Go off to uni." That's just not an option for for most of them, or to to go and study to be a carpenter, or to do small business, or become a writer, whatever they want to do. And I held a lunch in uh, in Melbourne at a place called the Kelvin Club. Uh, we raised a million bucks at that lunch, which was mind blowing in itself. But I met I met two people that um, in, you know, that influenced my life: Andrew Burns and Adrian Redlick. And they're both business people, and they both essentially said, um, one of them said, "I want you to come and meet with me once a month for the next twelve months." And uh, here's my card: give me a call, set it up. And basically, it was just you know, a bit of mentoring and, and whatnot. And the other one uh, said, I want you to come and work with me. I, you can, I want you to work a day a week, just come in, sit in on meetings, et cetera. And those, up until that point, I thought, I'm going to do it all myself. I'm going to build this business. So I, I'm going to do psychology. I, did, I didn't really know. I didn't really have a structure to what I was doing. I was well prepared, well planned, but it was kind of a bit of a, you know, 50% strategy and 50% hope. And um, I thought if I worked hard enough, uh, I'll be right. Those two moments then, when I look back, uh, the generosity, the uh, aptitude to kind of look and see and and want to help. And I think you know, it's it's a message I give to businesses and people that it's you know it's the simplest things that you can do um, to help people. It doesn't have to be veterans or or, or or whoever and whatever group. Good leadership is about recognizing that your 10 seconds with someone can have a profound or disproportionate or asymmetric effect. Um, for example, you know, CEOs, I say to them, walk the floor, go around and 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 just spend a few minutes with someone that you had. You don't you, your business might have grown to a hundred people now, and you, you hardly know the people at the fringes. You know, it gives an opportunity for that young person to go home and and say to their partner, well, the CEO come around and saw me today, and and you know we were chatting, and um, and just give them a moment. and those moments can really make much more difference than putting in hours to meetings and hours to this. Of course, there's lots to do, but. I think uh, that that's changed the way I looked at things, and certainly those two figures have loomed large in in um, in who I want to be now. You know, at fifty five years old, I still aspire to be something fresh and different, uh, and I've adopted that kind of mindset myself. I think it's just uh, just by um, simple moments and and 
offerings. Yeah, we we definitely never know the, sometimes the impact that we can have and what 10 seconds means to someone else we we might not even realize. We had someone on the podcast recently, you know, explain it as the shadow leader at five o'clock. You know, your shadow is is huge. And uh, you know, that's that's as a leader, that's that's how people interact with us. There's a lot of value in the simplicity of 10, 10 seconds or just walking the floor and getting to know your people. So, so yeah, it's a uh, metaphor for for life, cricket, combat. You know, mm. I will say that uh that metaphor to extend it, you know, combat is 99% just boring, banal, sitting around in the dirt, hoping that the coffee's hot, uh, you know, hoping to get a letter from the family, you know, hoping to hear that you're going to be back in the base for a shower soon. It's And then it's 1% of extreme, uh, you know, excitement, terror, whatever the case may be. Uh, cricket, test match cricket, real cricket, um, can be the same. It can be session upon session of just graft and grind, and then moments of highlight. And I think life's like that too. We idealise life sometimes that it's that you're in it and you're on, you're on it all the time, but it's just not true. Most of it's hard graft and, and grind no matter what position you're in in, in life. And uh, I think in accepting that and, uh, and understanding that, uh, I think uh, there's some comfort. Uh, mm. Be prepared for the moments that count. That's, that's, that's Yeah, uh, love it, love it. Uh, what about our guiding question on the podcast? We ask everybody in one to a maximum of three words. What do you think makes a great coach? Listening. Yeah, I'd probably actually just slightly adapt that to hearing because I think uh, lots of people listen. Well, maybe it's the other way around, but I think you know what I mean. It's just, um, you know, there's a difference between sitting and waiting for someone to speak. We all know this and actually hearing someone. And then there's then there's an emotional thing where you can actually empathise where you can lean into your kind of mirror neurons, whatever they are. Our best understanding is that we, you know, we we empathise through not only relating and in from memories, but we actually relate physiologically and biologically with people when they tell their stories because they're not different stories. You know, every all of us have the same life experiences, the same ebbs and flows. We have a finite endowment, biological endowment that's very, very similar. We all have two legs, two eyes, and I think there's a similarity there in our cognitive abilities and framework. Uh, that, But hearing people or listening that kind of deeper level that I'm talking about is actually, you know, uh, that that empathic listening. I think then um, uh, yeah, really hearing people uh, is 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 a art. No, I, I think it's rare. I, I really do. I, I, I sit in a lot of meetings with either... Um, you know, boards or executives or, 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 or football coaching departments, whatever. And you can kind of see the people who are listening and who are thinking, who are applying themselves mentally to the to the task at hand. And you can see the people who aren't. And it's not it's not a, a laziness, although, you know, I'd say there's a few people in the room who who switch off, maybe don't like the person that's talking, so they're defensive or don't like the idea that's being talked about because it wasn't theirs or whatever. But there's also this notion of a mind has a mind of its own uh, and you, you're fighting that all the time. And so you, even in meetings or sitting with people one-on-one in coaching relationships or you're sitting with someone debriefing mental health, uh, you know, significant mental health issues, not just in anxiety and stress, but disorders or something like that, or triaging as we do, uh, you, you, you're fighting your mind you know, your, your your partner just pops into your head at the at the moment. Someone's really you know uh, pouring their heart out to you, or, or you think about 
some ridiculous football or a coffee mug or something. So I think that's the thing about listening that I'm talking about is actually being able to fight through the own noise in your head, not just environmentally, and be able to stay tuned in. And then the longer you can do that, I think there's uh, that's when you tune in those empathic or mirror neurons or that part of your brain that really that simulates, uh, literally simulates what the person's talking about and describing rather than just going, oh, yeah, I've, I've been there and done that. Mm. And and also just saying, oh, yeah, I hear you. But actually when it comes back to saying what they actually said, it's amazing how many times people get that wrong, and me included, you know, when yeah, I, I be, think that I've really listened to my client and then I'm like, uh, so what I'm hearing is, and then when I try and repeat what it is that, that I heard, it, and they're like, oh, that's not quite it. And so that's a great way to even test your own uh, ability to hear what somebody's saying. Uh, as a coach, I think it's such an important skill. If I if I tune out, it is, and and it's it's we're not good at it. Speaking is not what the purpose of words and all the rest of it is. It's kind of a contrived, but it's it's to make sense of all the chatter in our head. That's ninety percent of all your chatter goes in inside your head, and then the rest of it's kind of just cursory outside. You're with yourself, obviously, twenty four hours a day. Yeah, ninety percent's a throwaway line. I've got no evidence to support that, of course. But I'm just saying the majority, and you know, fifty one percent. Let's even just call it that. Um, of the chatter is with yourself. So, mm. you know, I, I'll often go, I'll catch myself and I'll say, say that again, just say, say what you just said again. And for whatever reason, I think that's actually a functional tool because in coaching and counseling and debriefing, it, it's about feedback. You, you want the person to hear themselves talking as well. And I think this is key, a key part of of understanding what's making sense of what's going on inside our heads and hearing ourselves talk. You know, those moments where you go, shit, that didn't sound particularly articulate or, geez, I'm swearing a lot or I'm not making any sense. I'm just rambling on to fill the space because I'm self-soothing and trying to make myself feel good. Um, you know, I think that's a good, if, if I'm in those positions, I'll just say, just, just sorry, say, say all that again for me, just so, just so I'm clear. And that helps me. That's such a simple one. Say that again. I'm definitely going to use that. If I find myself giving solutions, I I pull myself up too. That's that's another test. I go, hold on. I'm 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 giving them a solution at the moment. Poor technique or squatting with a poor technique. They're running with a poor technique. You can you can give solutions if they're decision making. But if they're if they're trying to understand and unpack a, a, a psychological concept in their own mind, there if you find yourself giving a solution, I think. I think that's also a sign that you maybe need to pick deeper or listen harder or, or yeah, I, I, I have this kind of aversion to providing solutions. I'd rather sit for 90 minutes in a session and get the get them to come up with a light bulb moment at the 88th minute and uh, and generally it'll happen. And, uh, but yeah, so that, that's another thought I've got around. I think I'm averse to giving solutions where it's not, evidently obvious that it's required. You just summarize one of the reasons why I do this labor of love, this podcast, because <laughs> yeah. I'm of that philosophy and I've come from giving solutions as a tennis technical expert, my chapter yep. one to when I studied business coaching and understanding that the answers live within the person. So that's why this podcast is about coach for success in sport and business, because if sports coaches can learn to do more of this process of you know hearing and 
allowing them to solve their own problems, I think we can just learn so much from each other. So it's one of the reasons I have the podcast. And it sort of lends beautifully into Hmm. our final official question is where we ask you to ask us a question. Uh, Look, I'm fascinated in what motivates people. It's generally similar things, but there's nuance to that. It's a, that, it's a hard question, that one, because it's different for everyone. I want something different out of uh, everyone I meet. If I go, you know, I've been lucky enough to go to, to NASA, for example, that's a, a key memory in my mind and something I, I reflect on a lot. And all I wanted to do was find out about the program that was um, being run there. You know, that's what our business is about now, finding out what what is a high-performance program for a for a hedge fund or business group, you know, high-performing team, whatever that is in that context. Um, so, yeah, I'm interested in programs there if I'm speaking to that. But if I, you know, if I'm speaking to a medical team, you know, five people in an emergency medical team, I'm un- I, 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 my question is curiosity around how do you swarm and what do you do in the moments as, after you've swarmed and you're standing there in the, in the emergency department receiving communications, there's been, you know, multiple casualties and there's this that and all the rest and preparing how do you how do you grow a empathy quickly how do you bond quickly because you're about to go into an immersive event that is going to test you your patience your rationality everything else and you need to lean on each other and i'm you know so it's it's a very difficult question in in football um in football departments i'd say how do you hold this rock show together <laughs> because it you know once you go into these places you realize how you know, almost how they win in spite of themselves because they're they're you couldn't win a war the way that football partner and sports clubs run you couldn't win a you could couldn't win a war they're so disorganised but I get it it's just you're in in the battle from from so there's all all different things there mate I'm thankful that my mother and father bestowed or endowed in me you know a personality that's naturally curious. Probably, you know, not probably. I've got uh, mild ADHD, and I like that. I hope I never change. Um, it makes me a bit disorganised, but it certainly makes me energised. So, I think that being naturally curious, and I, you can foster that, you can nurture that, and you can develop that in yourself. And um, so, you know, that that just being curious. You know, I wonder what makes that person tick or that team good, or what do they struggle? I think that's just uh, you know. What, but what I would say is, if you do have an opportunity, if you're sitting beside someone who you know nothing about, uh, ask questions. You know, uh, that's the way, great way to develop because once you get into it, you go, wow, this is this is amazing and learn mm. so much. Totally agree with that. One of the reasons I did want to invite you on the show is, is because of a presentation I had the fortunate of experience in January uh, in Brisbane hearing you talk. And so I wanted to go there next. I'd love for you to share what you were telling us about the emergency department. So if we can go back to the the medical example, I thought it was fascinating around the the debrief. Yeah, I'll borrow here from uh, the Mission Critical Team Institute from Dr. Preston Klein, you know, amongst others, and and military processes. So they're not my not my own. You know, none of our thoughts are our own thoughts, really. But so on that day, we were talking about uh, you know. Meetings, coaching, um, intense moments, etc. And, and and the way I kind of broach it is is to use the the emergency medical team. Yeah, you know, when you think about emotions and rational decision making, you know, you sit in a boardroom 
on a finance deal, it's all pretty boring, mundane. You know, essentially glorified banks, bank tellers, not to dis, you know, dis um, bank tellers, but uh, you know, it's a little bit more complex. But there's no nothing on the line really, other than a bit of you know some some dollars. But in a medical department or and a football team, similar, there's a bit more on the on the line. You know, it's in 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 sports. You know, there's there's harm. And um, and you're also in the public sphere, so there's uh, that's that's uh, that's can be consequential. Treating how they come together, how they swarm, is is insightful. Accident event happens. Hospitals notified. Lead uh, doctor comes up with a plan, and then has to build a team that's fit for that for those injuries and bring that team together. And they come from anywhere in the hospital doing any job at that time, get paged, they have to drop what they're doing and swarm. And this is, a, you know, it's kind of teaming in high speed. And there's, you know, there's this moments when they first come together and it's all briefing and it's transactional information. And we, we're of the opinion or we've come to the opinion that in those moments, there's an opportunity to just stop, take a breath and uh, and empathise. We know that we know that, that works. We know that there's elements, indications of that, in, in as much as they put their names on their on their on their heads or what department they are or what color they like there's all kinds of things and this is this is them intuiting the world and saying we need to understand and and it, so and you know there's an opportunity there for doctors to say hey we are about to go into a pretty emotional there's two children five adults and it's going to be it's going to be ugly and I'm going to speed direct and I'm going to I might swear I might speak to you sternly but once we go in once i once we leave this conversation we're moving from a routine cordial flat structure into hierarchy brief or using brevity uh no room for emotions no room for taking offense and just that simple 30 second setup i think can alleviate a lot of a lot of problems and there there have been problems over the years in emergency medicine and and doctors and nursing staff and coming together and you think about it, you know, surgeons have got a lot going on. They, they talk about high trauma. They're cutting deliberately humans open and 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 live in that world. And we think that uh, just by treating routine environment and then immersing into these uh, these critical environments, pausing for a short period and just setting up the human mind and brain and expectation. So I hope that makes sense. You know, they, they swarm, they come together, they try and storm very quickly to use, I think it's Tuckman's model, uh, and you and build some empathy. It might be as simple as going, hi, my name's such and such. I'm from such, I've got two children and I love fishing. You know, it, it, we're still looking at that, but there's just something there to to, to switch on to, to storm. Go into the immersive event, give plenty of warning, set everybody up for it. It's going to be ugly. They'll be swearing. I'll be, someone will lose their temper. But when we come out the other side, exactly the same thing happens as we move from the critical phase hours, eight, 20 hours later, we come out the other side, we do the same thing. How is everyone in real time uh, guided out into the post event environment back into the, the routine and the military and, and you know, what we call the mission critical team will do this better than most. At the other end, the other part that you're talking here is the debrief. And, you know, I remember speaking to a SEAL years ago who uh, we were talking about military programming and human performance. We got onto the subject of hot washes and debriefing after action reviews. He was saying when we get off the plane in his team, not the Navy SEALs, like people people generalise all these things to the SEALs or software or all the rest of it. You've got to understand some of these cool things only happen in small teams. The rest is kind of pretty benign. 
uh, traditionally the hot wash is you get off the helo, you're still sweating, still a hot barrel, you know, um, blood's dripping off your hands from grazed knuckles, whatever the case may be, but you're still in the moment, you're still high active, everything's still visceral. And you stand in a circle and we used to see, we'd go uh, one kick, one kiss each. And the two I see would take the notes and we'd have a team of six blokes and he'd, he'd say one, a kick, something we did bad, a kiss, something we did good. And we'd go around and that was the, the debrief. But what we're moving to now, what we're, we're thinking about now is what about the feelings? That that goes to the transactional, the technical, the performance, the metrics, the things that kind of, um, you know, that the, the matter apparently but it doesn't build a story around how it felt. And so why is that important? Because, you know, you could have really pissed someone off as a leader and made a decision or done something that, that pissed them off. And if they, if that's left to just harbour and fester, that can turn into cynicism in the team and then that has ongoing effects. Someone might have really had a traumatic reaction or seen a childhood or something like that and they've got children. So you know where I'm going with that. So he he, he was offering saying, well, maybe we should have a kiss kick and, and, and how do you feel how, what was what was the what was the biggest emotion you know for some people it might be elation to finally be in a combat situation where they've been able to test their skills and and after testing that I think that's got so much merit and uh, Preston Klein and Claire Murphy who are colleagues will talk about what story are you telling about yourself and about the job that you do and the organisation you're in. What, what is the narrative? Have we all got completely different narratives? And if that's the case, is that a problem? Or are we all sharing in the same story and building the same narrative? And is that truer than if we just build our own individual stories? I hope that makes sense. And to finalise that, you know, the hot wash, get off the get off the helicopter, for example, or jump out the plane, you give your kiss kick and, and how you felt throughout that, that then you go for a, a shower and a an hour later or whatever that's when you have your debrief where you where the where the, the rationals kind of come back to to be you've had time to reflect um and uh you'll sit around we we'd sit around with a beer or a coffee or whatever and and uh and go take a deeper dive on the kiss and the kick etc and then all of those notes and all those thoughts then flow into an after action review which is done up to 24 hours later and that goes in into a playbook and, and that's another thing the military I think do well and that's that's where you capture your lessons learned corporate knowledge etc and that playbook I remember my playbook or the, or the playbook that I was privileged to uh to 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 steward for a while traveled with us everywhere and that had had just about everything in it that we that we do I think it's an electronic one so anyway long-winded way but I, I hope I've covered there's a that's a big field that we're, we're kind of looking at with a small group and other people I know are too and I hope that kind of captures it well, it, it really does because one of the things that constantly I'm finding, especially in corporate America, is that everyone's so time poor. So that 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 stuff and and I don't know how you feel about or the military feels about, you know, the soft skills like asking how somebody feels. I mean, you know, you're meant to be these tough guys in these in these suits and and not just I'm sure in the military, but also we all, you know, in the workplace we put on that facade. And we're so busy doing our job and everyone's so time poor, especially the managers and the leaders, that they actually don't often prioritise how just how important these hot washes are. And I just, I love even the language around it. It's not something that, uh, that's not a common, well, I'd never really heard of that until, you know, your presentation that day. And it's such an easy, quick thing to say, hey, did you do a hot wash after the after the match or after the deal went down? You know, I think it's something that we can all learn from and then create a playbook. Is something so simple for us to to all. 
be a part of that one story. So yeah, I really loved what, what you shared. So thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And I know that you also believe in this peer led reflective process or coachy driven yeah. process. Could you share a bit more around, around that? The peer support and peer learning and and peer debriefing, I think it just strikes me as the most powerful level of, of feedback. Um, yeah, this is, again, I've got no evidence to support. And just, just going back to uh, speaking to evidence, you know, it's funny, we've got more, people say they're time poor, but we've got more recreational time than they've ever had in human history. There's, there's never been a time where we've had more time. And there's a, I think it's called Parkinson's law. I'm kind of thinking on the run. You know, if you've got an hour to pack your bag and get to the airport, you'll take an hour. If you've got five days, you'll start packing. You know, so you'll fill the room that you've got with stuff. And I, I've got to be honest, in a lot of business settings, I just see a lot of nebulous, uh, there's some serious stuff that needs to occur. Don't get me wrong, but there's a lot of nebulous nothingness going on in the back and it kind of is just busy, busy work. And I think that there, there's something in that, you, you know, an easy way to move the needle on some of these um, investment teams is to, is to, uh, you know, I call it the brown noise. There's white noise and black noise. You know, that, that that's the, the yes and no and the decision-making, uh, but there's a lot of brown noise. I think you know what I mean <laughs> going on in there. Um, you know, going back to peer led, you know, so like, as simple as I can put it is, I would say to anyone listening, put a bunch of your peers from the team together, whether that's, you know, if you've got a team of 30, you've probably got five middle managers or, you know, to put them, give, give, them a, give them a chance to go in a room and spend time and debrief together. They'll probably learn more about each other and, well, not each other, but they'll learn more about where they're at in their careers, et cetera. Uh, they'll be having the same problems. They'll be pissed off by the same bosses. They'll be uh, complaining about the same staff. And I think in uh, in sports, there's you know it it, it it's it be, I've seen it be really in fact in tennis, I remember uh, uh, speaking to a room full of peers that 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 was kind of it seems quite uh, natural in tennis. I don't know what that is, but it's it's quite flat and been very powerful in peers sharing and supporting. And I think that that's what comes out of uh, leading peer support, you know, opportunities um, is that there's, that they, they because they can uh, align with each other and relate to each other at a professional level. I think that's far easier. You take the power dynamics out of it. You take the money out of it. You take the motivations generally closer than it probably is between a boss a middle manager and, and staff. It's not to say that you you're you shouldn't be you know building relationships all around you. You you, you kind of you you lead in five directions: up, down, peers, stakeholders, and yourself. But um, I think it's at the peer level where I've seen it work the best. And if you're more you know a lot of this, a lot of the practice and a lot of the self help online and all the rest of it, you know, it's 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 kind of the wild west of bloody met, um, mental skills and human performance and self help at the moment. But there's yeah, you know, the difference is the teams who are deliberate about these things. Uh, and who have the discipline to do them again and again and again till they get better at them. I think that's that's the key. And so what I'm saying there is you might think, oh, I'll just chuck the peers and they, and they and they sit around going, oh, that wasn't very worthwhile or that wasn't that didn't work very well. Some some will. It's not an excuse not to to do it. A lot of organisations are bad at these practices and these these processes, and that's because they're just bad at them. They don't they don't know. They've got to practice. You've got to 
crawl before you walk. And, and so, but, but when I've seen the good teams and the people who do it naturally, I think that peer support is, is a, is a, is a force multiplier when it's, when it gets right. And, and again, the military and medicine do this really well. We know that it works in humans at the end of the day, we're all endowed with the same opportunity uh, from, from the start. Of course, there's limitations uh, to that, to, to saying that, but generally speaking, and um, and uh, I think you know, if, we, if you look across to the military and, and medicine and police, mission critical teams, there's a lot, a lot of lessons to learn. It's kind of kind of our business model at Stoughton. I think that those approaches, whilst they're not intuitive and they don't fit and they might not suit everybody, I think there's a lot to learn and transfer across mm. and we're on a journey to find out exactly what that is. The Coaching Podcast is sponsored by The Samson Agency, a boutique talent agency managing entertainers, artists, and athletes. You can learn more at thesamsonagency.com. And if you're interested in becoming a coach, check out opendoorcoachingusa.com for all our latest courses in Leader as Coach and our High Performance Workplace Coaching Certification. Now let's get back to the show. And your book is called 11 Bats. Uh, congrats on writing your memoir in 2020. <laughs> Tell me about symbolism and just taking the bats on on the different tours that you went on. Yeah, well, you know, my cricket background is, uh, you know, is I played for 20 years for Applecross Cricket Club and um, I'm still available for selection um, I'm close to 102 day games, which is which is a thing. Um, I'd love to to get to 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 nail that. I played a lot of one day and the other pajama cricket, you know, 2020 and one day stuff. But um, you know, so the, the the club during particularly during the most intense period of my my service from 2000 to 2015. Um, the cricket club was a, a place where I could go and be Harry. It was kind of, you know, there's this concept of the third place where, you know, your family and your work are the first two and your your third place is where you can be selfish to a, to a degree and that's okay. Uh, so it, it was always there and I, I grew up, I will say, I, I feel like I've got an esteemed backyard cricket background. I, I I, I often say my father's, you know, the Don Bradman of backyard cricket. He's one of the greatest backyard cricketers. And that's a bold statement, but you can get away with it. What's, what is bad? No one owns backyard cricket. Ah. And so cricket's always been there for me. And, and, and certainly, uh, you know, back when I was a Navy brat, we'd arrive at a new base, dad would get posted. And, and the, one of the quickest way to build rapport with the kids in the streets. In the Back in those days, kids were running wild all over the streets. And I hope to see that again one day. Um, because I think it's great for a great sign that a society's thriving when kids are running and bike riding around on the streets late at night, not late at night, but, you know, as they used to. And you break out a game of cricket and the kids coming from everywhere. It's all there. It didn't matter. And everyone gets a bat and everyone gets a bowl. And that, that's the essence of cricket that I really like. So in uh, when I started deploying in that intense period, uh, I took a cricket bat and ball on every deployment I went, went on. Um, over that period, I had 11 major deployments, and uh, I took a bat on each one, and it was my habit to get everyone to sign that bat at the end of of the deployment. And nothing really was came of the bats; uh, they just kind of sat in a box. But but during that time, the the reason for the bat was I, I've always I, intuitively and I think very consciously and deliberately 
um, been aware of morale. And morale in the civilian sense is, I guess, organisational well-being and, um, you know, resilience and all of the the fluff kind of words uh, in, in, in the psychology realm um, that describe what it feels like to be in a in a team. And I've always had an intuitive. I'm a bit of a larrikin, a bit of a energised guy, as you can probably tell, and 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 love humour. I think I'm funny. Um, that that'll do. I'm, I'm happy if I think I'm funny. And so cricket became an artifact of that. You know, you bust out. Everyone can play cricket. Uh, uh, in, you, you, uh, as I said, you can have a, a dozen people playing and enjoying it uh, all at the same time. Yeah, and it played this significant role. I, very quickly, I realised in warfare that. Uh, it played a role. So it played a role in recovery, coming back from traumatic events. You'd see guys come back and people think you're this stoic soldier that's you know, clinking Viking jugs and that. And that's just not the not the truth. You know, when some of the uh, business is very serious and, and very draining, I'm sure you can imagine. And people come back pretty flat, pretty deflated. And um, so, you know, I, I saw the bat, someone to pick up the bat and ball and go for a hit. And then another person had joined, another person had joined. And before long, the shoulders were relaxing and the jaws were relaxing. And then there's an appeal and a joke and a sledge. And, it, and, and I saw it unwind a team in front of my, a very tense team in front of my eyes. Um, it builds rapport with locals. Uh, you know, you put, you're in the streets of Kabul or Islamabad and you break out a bat and a ball. And before you know it, the kids are coming around and it builds rapport. And in fact, you probably don't even think about this, but street urchins in those environments are your best first form of defence. Uh, they know everyone, they see everyone come and go. And if you uh, share a bit of shirani with them and have a odd game of cricket with them and all, they'll come up and say, Mr, Mr, this guy, he's no good. And, you know, so anyway, I digress. And then we've even used it for um, intelligence gathering, you know, up in the hills of uh, Afghan of um, Timor-Leste, we used a game of cricket to uh, subvert journalists and, and spies who were hiding in amongst them and coming up to visit, uh, you know, significant players in the Timorese um, conflict and, emergency uh, to play cricket, almost like a Hogan's Heroes ruse, you know. So it, it, it's, it loomed large and played a significant role over those times. And in the end, those bats uh, took them out of the box and dusted them off and the um, Australian, uh, the uh, Shrine of Remembrance uh, got onto them and we, we held an exhibition down there and uh, that's how the journey to the book started. It was a nice way to to, to scaffold the story and off, and soften the blow too, because I think it's arrogant to come out of the SAS and write a book. Uh, so I was worried about that, and I felt that the bats uh, allowed me to have a soft landing in that in that case. And I'm glad to report that's <clears throat> that's how how it's played out. Now it's not a tell-all book at all. It's just a, a, an honest bloke's I hope um, an honest story about a bloke who who kicked around um, overseas and played a bit of cricket and, and done some other stuff. Mm. So, um, and that those artefacts, I think, are, are important. Uh, again, it comes back to the rituals, routines and artefacts that military have. You know, at time, they, you know, there's a, there's a feeling in the mission critical team that the tradition and uh, history of these kind of, you know, very, sometimes very stale institutions, pale, stale male, if you want to put, put it one way, um, there's parts of it that we need to evolve. We need to move on because there's a there's a more sophisticated human coming through the gates. But there's also we don't want to throw it out in spite of you know, and lose all of that because there's there is a time to sit down and uh, deliberately and and pause 
and reflect on what we need to lose and what we need to keep. And uh, that's that's a key discussion, Emma, that's going on inside mission critical teams at the moment around the world. We're going to New York and London this year to talk, you know, in a pretty limited forum uh, about how how do how do old military units of hundreds of years old uh, repurpose, or not repurpose, but adapt to the to the change? Talking about organisational change in businesses, they've got nothing on these institutions. They're all Marines. You know, they've been around for 2,500 odd years. So, um, and it's a fascinating area. So, well, those artefacts of cricket bats, I hope, stay. And the um, mm. maybe some yes, of the old attitudes of cricket will evolve, you know. Yeah, and come out of the box. You never know. You never know. Yeah. They might... <laughs> Definitely take them to New York with you. I can uh, assure you that's a. Oh, I'd love to. I'd, I'd love to take them on the road. I always say to my wife that um, she goes, "Those bloody bats, get them out of here!" Because you know, I've got them everywhere, and they're in the dark, and I'm worried about the, the signatures fading. And I say, "Hey, those bats—they're they're, gonna—they'll pay for our last mortgage for our end of days house." So uh, <laughs> yeah, maybe, but they're unique, Emma. They really are. I, they're yeah. mine, but I, I, I haven't seen. I think the names. And the people that are in those bats, just the stories in those bats are amazing. And I think mm. um, it makes me kind of chill a little, you know, when I yeah. think about yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. One last uh, little tip for coaches out there. Yeah, definitely. Uh, look, we really are in a wild west, particularly psychology and uh, self-help. And I think there's just so much out there, different opinions. They all come back to some pretty basic and fundamental things. Um, so be curious, but be cautious. You know, in psychology, and I think this is really key for any coach, regardless of your background and qualifications, but in psychology, one thing I've learned, and, you know, you, you, you train for seven years to become a coach in psychology and it, it, with, and you need to be master's level. That, that's kind of where it's at. And that might be easy to discount, but it's not. It's it's it, it, you, you spend hundreds of hours practicing and honing before you're unleashed. And the one thing that's kind of really drummed into you is do no harm. Now, I, I, I think that that's at such a key principle that I, I get around on some coaching um, uh, websites and I do, I upgrade because there's so much good stuff out there and great courses in the Australian Coaching Institute. I think it is here, the ACI or CS, I can't remember offhand, but uh, some great tools and great resources and we, we, we tap into those. But the fundamental thing in, in psychology is that you just question yourself all the time. Do no harm, do no harm, no, do no harm. Now, as, as a rule, 99 out of a hundred people coaching is any coaching, anytime you stop and allow people to reflect and hold a mirror to them is a good, good practice. Uh, that, that, so there's nothing wrong there, but I think with everything that's going on, all self-help and all that type of stuff, it's just make sure what you're preaching is evidence-based, that it has an evidence base, it has a strong evidence base, not your uh, uh, evidence base. Uh, double down on that because every hundred times you may give someone hope who really needs it in a deep and profound psychological way related to mental health. And if they don't get it, that can actually cause harm. And so there's, there is a bit of a movement. You'll probably, I think it's percolating through within the psychology uh, realm. Um, um, to to posit this in the in the best possible way, but yeah, evidence, 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 and uh, you, you just make sure because it, it's intuitive to you, and and this includes for me. I remind myself all the time because it's intuitive to me, or I do it, 
then it doesn't make it you know suitable for everyone. In in Mission Critical Team Institute, we have a the tacit knowledge transfer problem. We're fascinated with it. We'll never ever get to the bottom of it because it's it's. it's it's to do with the mind and no one's got a bloody clue what's going on in there with all of the drowning in data of neuroscience and everything. No one's got a clue what's going on. And, uh, but, but, but so the tacit knowledge transfer is, is, is kind of where at the heart of coaching. That's one of the, one of the things. So look that up. If you're listening, dive into it. It's, it's, it's kind of at the core of what you do, but just cause you're good at a thing doesn't make you good at coaching a thing. Just cause you're experienced at a thing doesn't make you good at teaching a thing just because you're good at, Building a thing doesn't make you good at explaining a thing, and that's that's the challenge we all need to correct uh, to to check ourselves on. Um, so, long-winded way of saying do no harm. I think that's a really nice way uh, to to posit it. You, you don't have to sit there with every person running that through your mind, but I think when you're going through your evidence, think about the one person, a hundred or one in a thousand that um, you might influence, um, and you know one facet of that is giving false hope or uh, or actually giving uh, advice that's counter to their the, their individual difference. Well, thank you so much, Harry. From uh, Say That Again, the simplicity of uh, empathetic listening so that we can hear what people are saying, not solving the problems for them, and uh, do no harm. I appreciate your time and your effort and your energy to be on the show here today. And I'm sure everyone's going to um, enjoy this episode as much as I have. So thank you for being on the show. Thank you, Emma. Good luck. And if you enjoyed this episode of the Coaching Podcast, please share it with a fellow coach. And thanks for listening.